It's eight minutes after five o'clock, and we say good morning and welcome to the Saturday Morning Show here on WGN Radio Chicago. Orion Samuelson with you for our weekly get-together here on Saturday morning, and we're looking at a weather situation outside my broadcast studio in Huntley, Illinois, at 63 degrees this morning, but it looks like we could be in for a pleasant day today as we continue our move toward the beginning of fall. Lots to talk about this morning, but it's. I was sitting here thinking as I was looking at my Reuters screen this morning, what I used to check when I first sat down at the microphone in the morning and what I'm checking first of all today. For example, as I look down the headlines, South Korea floods, landslides kill 21 as heavy rains continue in that country. Russia reports more than 5,200 new coronavirus cases. And uh, the worldwide coronavirus cases count is now at 19,450,000 deaths on the planet from coronavirus, totaling 720,789 people. And yet people are not taking the pandemic seriously as we hear every day on some of our newscasts. And uh, yet when you see that kind of account worldwide, a lot of people have already died from the coronavirus. So I think we take it uh, seriously. The country of Indonesia, overnight 2,277 new corona cases. And the uh, uh, Philippines is uh, showing a large number this morning. And uh, countries from all over the world are checking in with the uh, coronavirus count. So, uh, this morning here on the Saturday Morning Show, well, we have Jim Fazell, as uh, Matt mentioned earlier. Jim Fazell will be with us. But there's one interesting report that uh, Max Armstrong will share with us this morning that uh, talks about a 100th anniversary of what? The American Soybean Association. Max Armstrong uh, was involved and participated in the 100th anniversary celebration that was held in Camden, Indiana this morning or this uh, week and an interesting story behind the beginning of the American Soybean Association a group that is supported by soybean producers with their funds to promote the use and the consumption of soybeans on the planet, especially here in the United States. And uh, one of the interesting stories that uh, came out of that gathering this week in Camden, Indiana, to celebrate is the story of the Fout family. Uh, Not all of you know the family name F-O-U-T, Fout. But uh, a lot of you who are my age listen to the uh, one Fout brother who uh, 
is known in the broadcast community as Captain Stubby. My golly, I worked with Captain Stubby uh, for quite a few years at various events, at farm progress shows and so on. One of the funnier people I've known in my lifetime, and it uh, was Captain Stubby and his brothers who uh, were involved in the formation and the beginning of the American Soybean Association. So Max will join us for that report this morning, and I think, I hope you'll find it interesting, because I certainly did, since I uh, did shows with Captain Stubby. He used to be on WLS Chicago, the Prairie Farmers Station, and uh, one of the uh, joys of my life, the opportunity to laugh at uh, Captain Stubby's jokes and to uh, enjoy his company at farm shows like the Farm Progress Show and uh, the other shows that we used to hold and conduct, but not this, uh, not this year because of the coronavirus situation, COVID-19. So those are some of the things we'll be doing this morning here on the Saturday Morning Show. And as I said, 63 degrees, and we'll check in with Jim Fazell when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. Well, good morning, Jim Fazell. My golly, we've got a busy morning ahead of us because we're going to repair our lawn. Is that right? That's right, Orion. Uh, you can't do it in one day, but you need to start now. Actually, uh, August is a prime time for repairing lawns in this part of the country. Usually, expect uh, a little bit more moisture than we get earlier in the summer, and we usually expect temperatures to be moderating, and they have done that in the last week. Of course, we're going to get some warm weather this coming week, but summer's not over. We, uh, If you look at the beginning of summer and the beginning of fall, and you try to measure the number of days in between, you end up with August we still have half a summer to go. We can't we can't kill the summer before it's done. So we have lots of time to do stuff. Uh, we don't need to be any hurry, and we need to do these things, taking our time to do them right. So August is the prime time to prepare lawns, and uh, we do need to start now. Actually, if you're a commercial turf grass grower, some of the sod farms around here and so forth, they aim for something like the 15th of August to begin seeding. Uh, that's a little way, ways off yet, but it gives us time to do some preparation. Uh, there are several ways to approach this thing. First of all, if you have a thatchy lawn, and a lot of them get that way, particularly lawns that are well taken care of, uh, you need to core aerify those lawns. And that is done with a machine that puts a hole every two inches through the lawn. That means that some of these lawn care companies that come out with a machine that has tines at 6 by 8 inches, that's 48 inches. Uh, you really want 4 inches. Two, 2 by 2 is 4 inches. So if you have one of those old-time lawn coreering machines that only makes a hole every 48 inches, you need to go over it 12 times to get it right. Well, nobody will, nobody will do that. And by the way, if you do that, you're really going to mess things up. So if you're going to core aerify, find a core aerification machine that has the tines at 2 by 2 Most of the good landscape contractors either have them or will get a hold of them. And, of course, golf courses all have them. That's the standard. The 2 by 2 is the standard. 
and our athletic fields like Wrigley Field and, and Cubs Park and so forth, where they do a core airification, their machine puts a hole every two inches. That's what it needs to do it. Uh, we had a, a mutual friend at one time that I convinced to do that, and he said "Look, it looked like the elephants had gone through his front yard. But about three or four weeks later, he said, you were right, it's beautiful now. So you got to do it right. Now, once you have it core-aerified, if that's what you need, there are several, other, several, things, several ways you need to approach this. First of all, if you just have some bare spots in your lawn or dead spots where uh, the chinch bugs got in it or the kids played out there and tore some of the grass out, you don't need to repair the whole lawn. You need to scratch those spots up. If there's stuff in there from thatch, you remove it, uh, put that in your garden someplace and take some fresh soil and fill that little low spot. Now, once you get those spots filled up and even and, and worked up so that you can have a kind of a, uh, a seed bed, a little bit of loosened soil. Seed those spots. Hand seed them. Gently rake the, the seed in. And you can cover them if you want to. Now, you can use just a handful of straw. and You can get straw at garden centers right now, bales of straw. Uh, also, if you're going to do a lot of this, there is a, a mat it's actually a woven mat of wood fibers that can be used as a cover. Now, if you're going to do a lot of it, you may, it may be worth, of you to, worth time for you to go buy one of these rolls of these, and they're not expensive, and you can keep them from year after year if you need to. So that's how you work up the little bare spots. Now, if you have a lot of bare spots in your lawn, maybe 50% of it has been torn up or, or uh, bugs have gotten into it, the, the uh, sod web worms or the grubs, so you've got a lot of bare areas out there. Uh, it may be it may be advisable to redo the whole lawn, but you don't need to dig it up to do that. The way to do that is to either slit seed the thing or to power rake it so that you have grooves going through the lawn and then seed it. Now you do that first of all by cutting the grass very short, making sure that you don't have any low spots or high spots in the lawn, which you can can if there's just a couple of those you can redo that by hand. When you get the lawn in, in fairly good shape, then slit seeding or power raking and then broadcast seeding will put seed down very nicely. It will put the seed down in rows. Now, if you're going to do either one of those, you need to make these rows north and south or east and west in your lawn or whatever direction you want to start. And then at a bias, and that means at about a 45-degree angle, so you don't have uh, rows of corn out in your, in your lawn, narrow rows, of course. Um, these slit seeders are like miniature conservation drills. They have a, a blade that cuts into the soil. They drop the seed behind that, and they have a press wheel behind that. They work beautifully. But if you can't get somebody to do that or don't know somebody that has one of those, you can do it with a power rake, which makes the grooves broadcast seed. And after you, after you get it broadcast seeded in there, you want, may want to roll it to get that seed pressed in. Now, if your lawn is a, a disaster, it's got a lot of weeds, all kinds of grasses, it's up and down, there are low spots that get wet in the, in the rainy weather and you can't walk out in the lawn because you've got a swamp out there. Complete renovation. This is the time you need to do that. First, whether you're seeding or soldering, sodding these, you need to get rid of the perennial weeds and all the things that you don't want growing out there. This means that you need to kill everything off, and now what we use is glyphosate. Spray it with glyphosate or have it sprayed with glyphosate. Wait five days to make sure that it's all going to be killed off. Uh, make sure there are no spots that you've missed. Uh, then you need to strip the lawn off. That means to, that you... Do it by hand or you rent a sod cutter or something like that. Take all the lawn off. You don't want to dig this stuff back in. You want to remove it 
uh, put it into the yard, yard waste or wherever you can put it to get rid of it. Actually, what we do with it is we put it into the garden, turn it over, and use it kind of as a compost to add to the garden soil. Now, once you get that done, you do need to do the leveling to fill in the low spots and to cut down the high spots. Once you get it leveled, then you need to prepare your seed bed. Uh, you can do this uh, with a garden rake if the soil isn't too heavy. I know some of the of the uh, uh, people that do this use a sod cutter. After they've gotten the sod off, they'll set the sod cutter a little bit low, run it back and forth so it loosens a couple of inches of that topsoil. That makes the seed bed. Then sod it or seed it. If you're going to seed it, you need the slit seed or you need the seed in two directions. Now, you can slit seed as well, but it's not necessary to do it once you have all that other grass off. Um, you can uh, seed in two directions to make sure that you good, good, get good coverage, and then you need to rake that in. Now, the way I do it is I turn one of these grass rakes, the ones with the wire tines in it, upside down, drag that back and forth, and it will push the seed gently into where it belongs in the soil, where it's going to grow very nicely. Once you get that done, this time of year, we can usually rely on moisture, but I think it's probably more advisable this year, since we seem to be having more dry weather than wet, uh, to prepare to, to wet that, that seed. And once you begin wetting it, you need to keep it wet until it germinates. This means putting moisture on there every day or every couple of days to keep it moist. Now, another thing that you can do to improve the, the germination is to use this fiber mat that I talked about. Lay this out across the lawn. Uh, you can water through it. The grass will begin to grow through it. It's held down with wire tines, which incidentally you need to count to make sure when you pick this stuff up, you don't leave those out in the, in the lawn. So if you put down a dozen of them, make sure you collect a dozen of them when you pick this stuff up. But that will keep the grass shaded, moist, very nicely, and some of this grass seed will be up within a week. Within two weeks, uh, you probably can take the mat off, and in probably three or four weeks, you're going to have grass up that will be just about ready to, to mow from seeding. Now, if you're going to sod, the, the, the process to prepare is exactly the same. Now, if you're buying sod, be sure that the sod you get is fresh and it was grown on the same kind of soil as you have in your yard. If you have a sandy yard, get sand-grown sod. If you have a clay yard, don't get peat sod, get clay-grown sod. Make sure that what you get is like what you have on your, on your yard because it will knit much more easily and it will avoid a lot of problems later. Uh, get the sod laid down, making sure the joints are tight. Uh, roll the ferment down and begin watering. Uh, once, the, once the sod is down there, it needs to be kept wet for a couple of weeks. If you're in a community where you have a watering restriction, you need to check with the authorities there to make sure that they'll allow you to put the water down on your grass, on your new sod, for the two weeks or so until it's knitted. Uh, most of them will have no problem with allowing you to do that, but they do need to know about it or you'll get yourself a little ticket. Nobody needs one of those. Anyway, there's some ideas about what you can do to get your grass growing, get your sod uh, laid down, uh, get your lawn looking very nice. And actually, if we start about right now, you're going to have a pretty nice lawn by the time uh, the summer's over and fall sets in. And certainly by next spring, the grass is going to be in good shape so that you'll have no problem with a beautiful lawn next spring. But I'm a little tired listening to you. It sounds like it's quite an event to uh, do the lawn by sod or seed. Which it's one would a, you do? What would I do? Yeah. <laughs> 
Don't ask me. I had a good friend who's a landscape contractor here go in and redid my parkway just about a year ago, uh, and it's worked very nicely. You know, yeah, I used to do a lot of this. In fact, Jane and I, I have sodded properties, and I've done, done a little bit of it on the side. Uh, it is a lot of work. It's a tremendous amount of work. But, you know, there are a lot of young people right now that are home. They're looking for something to do. And one of the things that they can do is to, to begin on a small scale. If you have a, a, a sizable yard and you have only part of it that needs some work, uh, go out and try it. Work that part out. Figure out how you're going to do it, where you're going to get the tools that you need to do it, and do it. Uh, if you do one little spot to, this fall, uh, you may decide that next spring you're going to do another little spot, and pretty soon you'll have the whole thing done. And I've seen big estates where the people say, oh, gosh, I need to have all this done, but I can't afford to have it all done at one time. You pick out the spots that are most highly visible, the ones that you're going to see all the time. Fix them first. Don't worry about the rest of it until later so that eventually you'll have it all done. But the parts that you're really looking at to start with look real nice at the beginning so you can enjoy them. And if you do it well enough, you may have a whole new career. You may have a lawn seeding company. So <laughs> that <Jim>. happens. <laughs> yes, it does. So thank you very much for the advice on starting or renovating a lawn and having a beautiful yard by the time we get to fall and winter. Our visit with Jim Fazell here on the Saturday Morning Show. We're at uh, 27 and a half minutes after 5 o'clock on what looks like a start of a pretty day and uh, we have been having some nice days with temperatures that are fairly comfortable but the thing that I have said uh, many times is the fact that despite the challenges we have with the uh, COVID-19 situation throughout the world here in the United States as well as other countries we've had some ideal growing conditions it's uh, quite a few years uh, since I can remember growing conditions with the crop conditions above 75% rated good to excellent across the country. And we've certainly got that right now. So uh, let's hope that we can get through the harvest season without a hurricane coming up the Mississippi into the Midwest or without the uh, problems from weather that we can have that we haven't had so far this year. The Saturday Morning Show, WGN Radio Chicago, a lot more to talk about. We'll look at uh, markets for the week. Uh, we'll look at some heavy buying by China of our agricultural products. And uh, so then, as I said, we'll have the 100th anniversary celebration of the forming of the American Soybean Association. That still to come here on the Saturday morning show. Again, 60 degrees outside my uh, home and my studio in Huntley, Illinois, and uh, what should be the start of a pretty good day. So at uh, 5.30, we say welcome to Samuelson Says here on the Saturday morning show. I'm Orion, and I'll continue a conversation that I hear almost every day, either by email or by phone or whatever, and that is the uh, effect of COVID-19 
on the agricultural markets. There is a fair amount of discussion in rural America these days on the impact of COVID-19 on agricultural markets. So this week, I'd like to share with you information from a monthly publication, the Purdue University CME Group Ag Economy Barometer, which is based on a survey of 400 agricultural producers every month here in the United States, all across the country. The July survey conducted from July 20 to 24. So what has happened over the year? Well, the index rose just one point from June to July to a reading of 118, that is still 30% lower than in February. And then unchanged from June, nine points lower than in May, 56% of producers reported they plan to reduce their farm machinery purchases compared to a year ago. 38% reported they plan to keep machinery purchases about the same as last year. And farmer sentiment, in July, did not change much compared to June, but it was still much weaker than in February before the impact of the pandemic. In July, farmers indicated they were less concerned about the current economic condition on their farm than earlier this spring, and yet they were less optimistic about the future. Over half of farmers responding to the July survey said they were less likely to attend in-person educational events in 2020. And when asked about their short-term outlook for land values, farmers' perspective improved. 16% saying they expect farmland values to rise over the next 12 months. And back in June, only 10% made that statement. So see how your thoughts currently would compare with those thoughts in the July barometer. Oh, and be safe, be well. My thoughts on Samuelson Says. A presentation of the uh, Nextar Media Group here at uh, 26 minutes before 6 o'clock on the Saturday morning show. The markets, well, we'll take a look at them uh, with uh, Mike Pearson and his market guest here in a moment. And then toward the end of the hour, we'll uh, check in with Max Armstrong, who uh, took part in that 100th anniversary celebration of the American Soybean Association this week. So stay with us because we're going to check in with Mike Pearson and his guest uh, in just a minute or so when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. 25 minutes before 6 o'clock here on the Saturday Morning Show, the start of a nice Saturday. And uh, whatever you plan to do, do it carefully and safely. Because as I said a minute or so ago, stay well and be safe. The uh, story that we have uh, that caught my attention this week, because we've heard so much about the tension between China and the United States impacting trade between these two countries, and yet this week, 
The U.S. Department of Agriculture reported private sales of U.S. soybeans to China, 456,000 tons on Thursday, the biggest single-day soybean sale to the world's top buyer since June 11. Smaller sales were reported on Wednesday and Thursday, as well as sales to unknown destinations earlier this week on Monday. And the deals came despite the rising political tensions between Washington and Beijing. China's purchases of our products, corn, wheat, grain sorghum, soybeans, and pork, are continuing at a rapid pace without regard to any geopolitical tensions, according to Bill Lapp, who is president of Nebraska-based Advanced Economic Solutions. China's soybean imports rose 18% this year through July versus a year ago, as large volumes of soybeans from Brazil also arrived, according to Chinese customs data. The Asian country has increasingly turned to U.S. supplies in recent weeks, with the USDA reporting China bought nearly 5.2 million tons of U.S. corn, along with 3 million tons of soybeans and 320,000 tons of hard wheat since July 10. However, China still has a long way to go. It's far behind the pace needed to meet its commitment of buying $36.5 billion under a Phase 1 deal. The U.S. exported just seven point $2 billion in agricultural goods to China in the first half of this year. So, despite the geopolitical tensions and the anger that we hear between China and the United States on other indications, they still are buying a fair amount of our agricultural products, and uh, we'll hope that they'll keep buying so that uh, we do get to that number that they committed to back in January when they signed the Phase 1 trade deal between the two countries. We're at 21 minutes before 6 o'clock here on the Saturday Morning Show. And to talk more about market activity, let's check in with our friend Mike Pearson. Matt Bennett from agmarket.net is joining us this week. Matt, thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. Thanks for having me. You bet. Well, I tell you what, uh, looking ahead to this next week, we've got the August World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates Report coming out of USDA. As you look ahead, gaze into your crystal ball a little bit. What do you think USDA is going to do with this corn crop? Where do you think yields are going to come in? Yeah, that's a really good question. Obviously, everybody's going to be looking first at yield. No question about it. I guess we have to look at the crop conditions a little bit. I know a lot of folks want to discount those, but you got to look at those and, and look at what, what we've done in the past. And so very similar rated crop back in 2018, USDA came in. Now they were in the field. We all know that, 
And so uh, only part of that was based upon surveys. But uh, back in 2018, they came in at 181. You know, you're five, six bushel above trend line back then. Uh, are they going to have something like that coming out again this year? And I guess I would assume that it's going to come in well above 180 uh, just based upon, uh, you know, your survey-based approach. I do think the producers outside, especially of the stressed areas of Iowa, are probably going to be pretty high on their crop. Gotcha. Now, when you think about a corn crop over 180 bushels, perhaps substantially over 180 bushels per acre, you know, we've seen the December contract lose about 40 cents since early July. Have we priced in a, a monster crop this year? You know, that's a really good question. I, I've got to think that if we didn't have some of these uh, nice sales, surprise sales here in the last couple, three weeks from China, you know, two million ton last week, obviously huge, uh, huge, uh, I guess, uh, sale that we weren't necessarily expecting. I think that the market would have struggled to keep this 320 support. Uh, are we going to see more sales like that moving forward? Uh, I do think that we've probably priced in a pretty good sized crop. Uh, have we priced in a 183 or 184 like some of us are for this August report? Uh, maybe not. So I think it remains to be seen. It's going to be moving parts. I think a lot of things are at play, though. I mean, you're looking at some inflationary stuff going on. Obviously, the dollar has been very weak lately. Uh, so there's some things that are actually supporting the corn market that maybe we weren't counting on previously. Well, now, how about soybeans? Of course, as we head into the month of August, this is the key month of growing season for that soybean crop. Uh, what are you guys looking at for expected yield on this USDA report? You know, for, for beans, we're looking at around 51.4, 51.5, you know, right in that neighborhood. Uh, we feel like they'll come in in August and, and it'll be above what they're, they were projecting previously, just due to the fact that, again, you've got really good crop conditions. Uh, are you going to see a, a really large yield here in August? It's probably a little early to be able to post something like that. But I think that if the forecast verifies moving ahead, looking forward, Mike, I've got to think that this uh, yield that they post here next week could probably grow in, in future reports. I mean, I feel like this bean crop could be rather large. I think we set the table for it uh, with a really good fall last year and a really good spring this year. Uh, and so we were able to see uh, early planting. We know that that typically is conducive to really good yields. And so I think this bean crop actually is, is, is quite large. Now, from a technical perspective, given that we do have potentially a large soybean crop coming, that 880 level in November seems to be a decent uh, level of support. Does that carry forward post-report, do you think? Yeah, again, that's a great question. I think that there's still some moving parts there. We know that uh, Chinese purchases have just continued to uh, be fantastic uh, for the market. You know, we, we've been able to see uh, sales every week of late, uh, you know, that I, I think have just been nothing but a pleasant surprise. And so are we going to continue to see those? And I, I do think that if, if the Chinese keep buying, even if the crop's big, you, you probably at least see some support in that area. Matt, before we jump off the topic completely, Wazdi coming out, what are your carryout expectations for corn and soybeans? You know, I think even if we come out with a, a large yield like we're projecting, we're still going to be below 3 billion bushels. You know, you might end up seeing a new crop carry in that 2.9 area, 2.8.5, 2.9. Uh, you know, but bottom line, I don't think it's going to get wildly out of control. Uh, you know, as some people suggested maybe a couple months ago, as far as uh, uh, soybeans are concerned, you know, I think in that 5, 5.50 range is probably going to be a, a safe place to be unless they get a little aggressive on the upside on yield, uh, which I, again, Again, I really don't think that they're going to do for this report. All right. Well, you mentioned earlier the weakening of the U.S. dollar. This has been a trend that's been in place for about six weeks. Uh, certainly should be beneficial to the wheat market. We've seen a lot of volatility in wheat. Is that going to continue? 
you got to hope that you'll still see some volatility. I mean, traders love to see volatility. We know that. But, you know, as far as the wheat market rallying, which I think a lot of the people that are watching are, are wanting to, uh, I guess, get a handle on it. It's a tough time of year, in my opinion, to get a wheat rally. I do think some of the issues that we've had around the world as far as weather is concerned, you know, have been somewhat mitigated. I, I think that we've got good enough weather to have enough wheat. Now, inflationary-wise, is that going to help the wheat market? I absolutely think that it could uh, if we do get some inflation if the dollar continues to drop I and mean, we saw good export sales again this week uh, but i can't say that i'm bullish wheat i i, I struggle to get bullish especially going into harvest corn and beans i think could be a bit of an anchor i, I just don't see the wheat market being able to see uh, new highs by any stretch of the imagination all right well as we get through summer of course you mentioned we are looking ahead to harvest but we're also coming through grilling season matt when we think about meat demand we've seen live cattle be in this upward trend since the depths of the COVID crisis earlier this spring. How much higher can we run here throughout the summer? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Again, of course, I mean, this is a high demand time uh, and we know that a lot of folks haven't been able to go out to eat, but at the same time, we're all trying to grill, trying to just get outdoors and do something, you know, especially in the areas where people aren't able to get out and go as much as what we are in the rural areas. But, uh, you know, what, what are we going to see for cattle price? I mean, I, I've said all along, that I think if you could work through some of these heavier weights as far as your uh, your live cattle are concerned i think that you could see some uh, some more strength later on uh, if i look at december cattle i could see us getting into that 115 117 area on down the road uh, i do think that there could be more upside here i think beef demand is very strong uh, people are still going to want to eat a steak if they get a chance to do so and i think that that's reflected you know in what your price structure is with a little bit of carry in this in this live cattle market do you think we can get there with rolling uh, shutdowns still in place throughout the economy or do we really need restaurants open to move that live cattle price higher i kind of feel like if you really want to get the live cattle price exciting um, you know you're going to have to get your restaurants back open but can we get to 115 without that happening yes are we going to get above it without it happening eh, that might be a little bit more of a stretch i'm making the assumption that as we move forward uh, we're going to find ways to open up at least in some areas i know that it's uh it's i mean i'm no politician i don't know a whole lot about uh you know all the ramifications of opening up everywhere uh, but i do think people are wanting to get back to normal if at all possible i mean nobody wants to put anybody else in danger but i do know people love to go out to eat and they love to go out to eat on friday night for a steak dinner you bet something to celebrate a little bit well matt bennett we always appreciate the chance to chat with you thanks for giving us your insights on where these markets are headed Hey, I appreciate you having me on the show, Mike. It's 11 minutes before 6 o'clock news time. Glad to have you along for our weekly get-together here on the World of Agriculture on the Saturday morning show. And uh, golly, I missed a party this week, but Max Armstrong was at the party and uh, shares his impressions of that party. So it sounds like a good time, Max. Orion, it was quite a celebration, quite a party to mark the 100th anniversary of the American Soybean Association. And it was held on a farm about 120 miles southeast of Chicago. Camden, Indiana was where we gathered with some other folks this week. Yeah, we got together for a meeting. Now we were, in fact, social distancing and we were wearing masks there on the Fouts Family Farm at Camden, Indiana, where it all started with the American Soybean Association 100 years ago this summer, right after the First World War. 
the Fouts brothers, three brothers, Taylor, Noah, and Finus Fouts, had a seed company there. And they were growing soybeans. They wanted other farmers to grow beans. So they held a field day, and then eventually they formed what was called the National Soybean Growers Association. Just a few years later, the name was changed to the American Soybean Association. And the Deputy Secretary of Agriculture, Steve Sinsky, was there this week. That was significant because not only is he an official from Washington who has a lot of impact on the soybean industry, but for 21 years, Steve Sinsky was the Chief Executive Officer for the ASA. Congratulations to ASA for 100 years of, of great history of representing soybean farmers, and that's really something to celebrate and how wonderful it is to be back here on the farm where it all started 100 years ago. I think the Fouts brothers would be very proud of what has what they've seen from the soybean industry uh, and the association and how it has grown over the last hundred years. Um, second of all, give a little bit of an update on some of the programs that we have ongoing from USDA. Uh, USDA has been a partner, of course, with farmers and, and the soybean industry for a lot of years. But uh, talking about our coronavirus food assistance program, talk on some of the trade issues, uh, China, the phase one deal, and how that's going, as well as the USMCA, Japan. And then looking to the future, talking a little bit about ag innovation and the importance of technology and always keeping an eye on the future, which is appropriate as we celebrate 100 years, but also look forward to the next. Since you alluded to it, and before I forget it, uh, phase one, is it still on track, you feel? Yeah, phase one is still on track. Uh, you know, where China has been, been purchasing and they've been stepping up their purchases of agriculture commodities, as we've seen in the markets. We still think that they can do better and they have more to do, uh, but they have uh, lived up to their agreement in terms of uh, revising and uh, eliminating, uh, solving a lot of, t of tariff and non-tariff trade issues that really were frustrations, sometimes for decades, that kept our products out of the Chinese market. We've taken care of those. And then, of course, the purchase commitments, and China has been stepping up. They still have further to go, um, but they say that they have every intent of living up to it, and we want to hold their feet to the fire as well. They are shrewd traders. They've proven that over the years. Do they need us? Well, certainly they do. Uh, you know, I mean, they, they uh, are, we're, we're one of the largest suppliers in the world. And of course, we've seen that they have been purchasing. They do need our soy. They've been purchasing corn. Corn prices are way up in China. And we've seen some really huge corn purchases from the United States, which is great to see. Uh, pork, beef, chicken, just a number of commodities, yes. From the standpoint of uh, watching that market develop over the years, where would it be had it not been for the United States soybean growers getting involved there? I mean, can't, can't they uh, take a significant amount of credit for that? Sure. I think the uh, soybean industry, the American Soybean Association, uh, opened up its first office in the 1980s in China. Uh, and China was a net exporter then. Uh, and But it was uh, ASA leaders, state association leaders uh, that, uh, that really saw the potential for the future and said that, no, this is a big population. They want to improve their diets. They have rising incomes. Uh, and of course, uh, China went from, of course, a net exporter to the largest market market, import market in the world for soybeans uh, and including U.S. soybeans. 
We'll find out uh, next week, I guess, uh, the potential size of this crop this year, but the USDA report comes out, but it looks like a good one, does it not, from what you're seeing? It sure does. I mean, all the anecdotal reports that I hear from across the country talking to farmers, it does look like we have a good crop coming. Uh, there's been some timely rains uh, that have happened, and, and certainly from uh, this trip that I've seen coming from Washington uh, and landing in Indianapolis and then driving up here to, to Camden, uh, the crop looks great. I would ask you just to reflect back on your role with the ASA about the importance of the producer involvement, Steve. Uh, you know, when you look at everything that's in play from a governmental affairs standpoint and all of the work that ASA does, how crucial is it that the soybean grower become a part of this? It really is crucial that uh, soybean uh, growers, uh, there was a reason why 100 years ago, soybean growers got together to form the American Soybean Association. It's because they recognized that if they wanted to grow the industry and have collective representation, they needed an association to do that. And that's just as true today as it was 100 years ago. And, uh, you know, that's what I really count myself as fortunate. I was fortunate enough to serve as CEO of the American Soybean Association for 21 years. And it was the farmer leaders that are working uh, and that are rank and file members, state association checkoff leaders, or national association and national checkoff leaders. The time, the effort that they're given to promote this industry, uh, it wouldn't be where it is today without those farmer leaders. Steve Sensky from Washington. The governor was there too, the Indiana governor there from Indianapolis. He had come out to help unveil a historic marker there along the highway, designating that as the birthplace of the American Soybean Association. Several Indiana farmers were in attendance, including Kendall Culp, who farms at Rensselaer, Indiana, and shared with you some thoughts about the ASA starting in his state. They were growing soybeans from the early 1900s, and uh, they actually were working with Purdue University and eventually helped develop some varieties um, and really brought soybean production to the forefront here in the Midwest. I have to ask you, Kendall, weren't you a little bit surprised to learn that the association had its roots that far back? Well, really, I was, and I didn't know that, that right here in Indiana is where, is where they were born. Um, you look at the um, all that American Soybean is associated with today and involved with and all the good advocacy they do in Washington. Um, I'm really glad the, glad the Fouts brothers had that foresight 100 years ago and brought us to where we are here today. Kendall Culp, Indiana soybean grower. He farms right down the road at Rensselaer, Indiana. He's a member of the National Board of the American Soybean Association. Kendall is also the vice president of the Indiana Farm Bureau. Oriented. We had a great a visit with uh, many friends from the past, many who asked to say hello to you as we gathered there at Camden, seen to the Fouts Farm. And if that name is familiar, Tom Fouts was a part of that family, and Tom was on the radio in Chicago. He was on the old Prairie Farmers Station over WLS back in the day when it was the Prairie Farmers Station. And Tom was Captain Stubby, who brought a lot of entertainment and a lot of joy to folks out in rural America. It's a minute before 6 o'clock, and a quick look at those market sheets from yesterday. Grain market sheet totally red as we saw the prices for wheat, corn, and soybeans move lower for the day. The... Uh, Livestock screen has a little more color to it. There's some green as the hog market moved higher and the nearby cattle contract moved higher, but the other months were lower. So 
Again, that's our time. It goes quickly here on Saturday morning. My thanks to Bob Ferguson, who does the fine engineering work uh, on this program for this hour.